0: Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach Critical Mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs
1: Welcome to Fintech Insider. Today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by James Lloyd. So James, you're the EY APAC leader? That's uh,
0: a pretty. A-PAC Fintech leader. APAC Fintech leader. I wish I was leading the whole thing, but I'm a bit really uh, leading the Fintech Yeah, I gave
1: you a promotion right there, didn't I? That's, Absolutely. Uh, apologies for that. Take the pay um, rise as well. Pretty impressive job title, I have to say, and and kind of a big region. Um, tell us a little bit more about what that, uh, that entails.
0: Well, job titles are important in Asia in particular, so if it wasn't impressive, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> So actually, I really just joined the firm about eight or nine months ago, uh, actually to, to build up this position and this capability. So a couple of interesting things about EY. Um, we've got a regionally integrated P&L in, in, in financial services across Asia. So that means I, I, you know, I sit in Hong Kong, but I'm not in a Hong Kong office or even a greater China office. It's an Asia-Pacific capability. So that's pretty exciting because it means you know I'm equally interested in what's happening in Shanghai as I am in Singapore or Sydney as I am in Seoul. Um, So, yeah, it's a big region. There's a huge amount of variety and and some super interesting things happening there on the fintech side. In terms of the role and in terms of the team that I'm building, it's very much focused on getting folks who have uh, ideally some background uh, or experience in in building fintech or or, or, uh, building, scaling, selling um, fintechs, whether into incumbents or, or other. Um, And really trying to understand, look, what are some of the trends that we need to be conscious of, who are some of the interesting early stage and growth stage companies, and how might they want to work with or be able to work with some of the larger, more forward-thinking incumbents.
1: Sounds fun. Um, sure. So that's clearly not a, a local Hong Kong accent you've got right there. So t- tell me a little bit about the background. How did you go from Ireland? Whereabouts you yeah, from? Dublin. From? Dublin. So how did you get from Dublin to Hong Kong then? Tell us that story.
0: Yeah, it's a funny one actually. So really the background is very much my, my wife and I both Dublin born and raised. We got married end of 2011 and we said, you know what? We're, we're going to set up shop here. We're going to have kids, uh, but let's go somewhere for two years and do something totally different that we've never done before. Uh, you know, in advance. So, we actually just said we want to go to Asia. Um, both of us, you know, fortunate enough to be reasonably well-travelled, but didn't really know much about Asia, frankly, except the fact that it was a pretty exciting market. There's a lot going on. So, we th- looked at Hong Kong and Singapore. Were kind of the two obvious uh, landing points. We neither of us had been to either, uh, and in fact, didn't know anyone in either. So. We ultimately landed on Hong Kong for, for a couple of reasons, but um, suffice to say, yeah, within a few months we were on a plane and, and, and landed, and you know, the idea was two years and home, and you know, five years and two kids later, you know, we're still there, and yeah, things have worked out great. Actually, I, I mean, I love Hong Kong. I think it's a phenomenal world city. Uh, Asia is extremely exciting place to be right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's been one of those kind of strange happenstance, but you know, we figured we want to do something new. Um, and so far it's working out okay.
1: Yeah, so like Hong Kong, as you say, it's it's a phenomenal place. I, I say to my wife, it's one of the places that I like long to go back to. You know, it really has a kind of a magnetic draw to it, doesn't it? In terms of like the scale of everything is just amazing, isn't it? In terms of the, the high rises are never higher in terms of doing it. And, you know, just that uh, the train from the airport in, you know, literally you must be viewing millions of people in terms of doing it. Sure. And, and maybe this is a, you know, a good inroad into the, I guess the the financial technology element there, you know, scale in Hong Kong is like no other, right?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, look, it's there's, there's pros and cons to everywhere. I mean, I think for me, the pros in Hong Kong in particular are, of course, just as a place to live, it's very easy. It's so um, geographically concentrated. I mean, it's just very easy to get around. It's very, I, I mean, someone mentioned to me one time the kind of velocity of communication is very high, which sounds kind of cool. I'm not sure I, I fully follow it, but what it means certainly for me is I can go meet ten people in a day. And you know, everyone is relatively centralized, everyone's very accessible, and people are interested in what other people are doing. So you know whether you're working in in, in law or whether you've got a tech startup or whether you're you know in retail or whether, whatever, everyone is very interested in what other people are doing and hey how can I potentially leverage that or how can we work together and, and so on and so forth. So the city itself has a great energy uh, and i really i really like that aspect of it but i have to say a big component of it is access to the kind of greater apac region mm-hmm. so you know a huge advantage of hong kong is just a world class uh, transport infrastructure but that includes the airport you know you mentioned the train in and out and just being able to get to vietnam in 90 minutes or being able to get to singapore in kind of 3 hours or or philippines or malaysia indonesia and then of course access to china so You know, I'm I'm up in China, you know, once a month. I'm I'm back in Hong Kong next week. I'll be up to Shenzhen for a couple days. I'll be up to Shanghai for a couple days, and just having that connectivity with the region uh, is great, right? Um, So I I love it, right? But it's also extremely hectic. I mean, the 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 pace of life and the speed of everything is energizing, but it's also pretty exhausting. So you kind of need to get out of the city uh, pretty regularly as well. Sure.
1: So what? Um, tell us a little bit more about the role that you're doing at EY then. What, uh, what is EY's, I guess, you know, global and APAC specifically uh, fintech strategy?
0: Sure, so actually one of the reasons I'm in, in, in London this week is we're, we're kind of bringing the global team together because we're, you know, I think a big uh, opportunity for us is to be fairly globally aligned. Um, and so what I mean by that is we've got our uh, global head of fintech uh, based here in London and he's also responsible for EMEA got our Americas head, uh, based out of the valley, and then we've got folks in, in markets like New York and elsewhere, and then of course myself in, in Hong Kong and I'm looking at the APEC region. So we try and align a, across regions and kind of have a global connectivity, but what that means in practice is, hey, what are some of the big kind of macro trends that we're seeing either on financial services or the technology side, uh, and how is this gonna impact our big existing clients, who of course are the big banks, big insurers, regulators, um, and then also, what are we seeing in the early stage, growth stage um, space? So you know, I think the interesting thing of trying to take a bit of a global view is uh, a lot of these markets... I mean, is trying to be a fintech hub, right? This is kind of the running gag right now, it's like, where isn't a fintech hub? But for me, it's kind of basic comparative advantage. I mean, I spend a lot of time at the moment talking about how, from a consumer tech perspective, China is miles ahead, mainland China is miles ahead. But then I come to London and I spend a lot of time looking at the open banking side of things and I'm like London is miles ahead in that space. Uh, If you look at some of the deep tech stuff, uh, infrastructure piece, I think you could probably say that the US is is kind of ahead in some of those aspects. So, you know, how how does this all fit together? Well, if you're a startup or you're scale up and you're looking to internationalize, I think you need to have a good sense of what's happening in other markets. If you're a big global or regional uh, incumbent financial institution and you're kind of sufficiently forward thinking to say, you know, I need to care not just about what my competitors are doing here, but maybe what uh, you know, Anne Financial is doing in China, or what's happening in India with India Stack and so on and so forth. So, the, this is a long-winded answer to your question, so for that I apologize, but we've kind of got a bit of a global view and then we take it to the region, and the region is very much about enabling um, you know, high growth potential startups to, to flourish and to help them you know, build their enterprise and prosper. And while at the same time kind of working with some of the more forward-thinking incumbents as they seek to say you know how do we take advantage of some of these new business models how do we partner with with smaller companies and this is one of the areas that gets a lot of focus and attention but i still don't think people are are getting it right everyone's talking about big companies working with small ones but it's you know for my mind at least it's not really about accelerators or incubators it's about you know procurement policies and and kind of vendor risk management and technical integration and that kind of hard difficult stuff yeah so if you can bring together the right people in the room with the right skill sets and, and you, can, you can put a business model around it, you can do some pretty cool stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, EY um, actually released a report, didn't you? Um, I think it was last year, wasn't it? About the leaders in uh, fintech, you know, which cities were doing most. I was actually at Downing Street when this was released. Uh, it was Harriet Baldwin and Eileen Burbage and these guys. Yep. Um, they actually put the UK, so London, the, you know the top sort of pinnacle of, of fintech. I wonder if that was done again today with all of the changes, with the you know the technological changes. This is a probably after Brexit. Mm-hmm. Is there a post-Brexit Brexit thing there? Go like I wonder if that dynamic would change. Is, you know, is there any plans for EY to you know give that a lick of paint and, and yeah. you know review it?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. We actually are in the process of, of something comparable. I mean, I think that specific report, um, for example, mainland China wasn't in it, and that was the the selected countries were a consequence indeed of the um, of HM Treasury, I guess yeah. who. Uh, which I think made sense relative to where they were looking at at the time. And I mean, I think London does honestly uh, remain in certain aspects a, a really a key driver of a lot of this stuff and I I, I think PSD 2 actually specifically the CMA uh, application of open banking is a key driver of that but also frankly the fact that the UK for me a lot of this fintech moment is of course about access to computing power, access to analytics, um, you know, just the democratization of building companies that are, and building financial services solutions at a, at a you know, more easier, more cost effective way. But it's also the fact that we had a global financial crisis, and London, the UK, was particularly badly hit. I mean, let's be honest, right? So as a consequence, many of the banks retrenched, so that allowed a bit of white space for challengers to come in. But also, the regulatory environment here has been extremely, I would say. Well, depending on your view of the world, progressive or active or however you want to describe it. And and from an FCA perspective, from everything else in saying, Hey, we really need to enable non-traditional providers of financial services. You go to Asia and that's not necessarily been the case, right? Hong Kong, Singapore, Sydney weren't, you know, Tokyo weren't impacted to the same degree. So the drivers have been a little bit different. Um, this is a very circuitous way of answering the question, but. You know, the kind of net effect of this is if we're to do the same thing today and we're looking at it differently, I think it's more a question of, as I say, not necessarily compare and contrast, but like what are the potential comparative advantages and then how can you work across some of that? So, in fact, we've just done a report a couple months ago, again, for the UK government saying, you know, the opportunities for UK fintech and China fintech from a kind of an inbound, outbound opportunities perspective. So, that's kind of how I'm, that's how I think of the world. It's. Of course, everywhere is competing and competition is good, but it's also a question of, you know, what can you really focus on and then what can you export, whether they be businesses or business models or expertise or whatever else.
1: Yeah. Well, in- increasingly, and, and maybe back to, back to China specifically, there's a huge amount of that sort of being exported, isn't there, in terms of China. So, so what, what sort of big advantages do you think China's got in the, I guess, particularly in the fintech space?
0: So for fintech, I mean, I, 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 stand by my assertion that, you know, China is the world leader when it comes to consumer fintech specifically. Um, but there are a number of reasons for this. So, you know, without getting super detailed on it, I mean, first and foremost, the kind of unmet needs in mainland China are, are considerable. So, you know, what I mean by that is where here in London, you know, getting access to a bank account or a credit card or a basic investment or savings product is relatively straightforward in china traditionally the banks have focused on supporting corporates and state owned enterprises so there has been this kind of unmet needs this market gap that the big technology players have, have really uh, moved pretty aggressively to fill so you know alibaba moving from e-commerce into financial services through alipay and ant financial tencent moving from messaging and gaming into you know wechat and ultimately wechat pay uh, and of course baidu and and so on and so forth jd and so on So, you know, I think there's been this market opportunity. I think the uh, regulatory environment has been very conducive to this, Uh, and in fact, you know, whether it's on peer-to-peer finance, whether it's alternative payments, whatever it might be, the the Chinese authorities have taken the view that, look, let's allow these companies to grow until such a point, and perhaps then we introduce certain regulations, limiting factors and so on. So anyway, there's a myriad um, specific factors to China, why these big tech companies have grown. In financial services, the way they have, um, but I also think there's been this kind of classic leapfrog, whereby you know they haven't gone with let's build, you know, uh, let's replicate the kind of old card networks or rails or whatever it might be. Let's just go straight to uh, let's go straight to wallet. Let's go straight to. Um, credit scoring, which is digital from, from the ground up. It's, it, everything is not just mobile first. In many cases, it's mobile only. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's some really interesting business model innovation. So I think people talk about China because the numbers are, are always... Because it's China, the numbers are always big. And we look at its, you know, funding and scale of companies and so on. And I think that is worth noting for sure. Uh, but also business model innovation has been really quite interesting there. And I think there are opportunities to export some of that mm. business model innovation. And certainly to to replicate it. I mean, I'm very much of the view that, you know, to to again talk about kind of CMA and open banking here in the UK, uh, I mean, surely the big tech companies are looking at this saying, if I'm Facebook or I'm Amazon, I'm looking at this saying, hey, this is a great opportunity for us to move laterally into financial services and kind of avoid, perhaps, some of the regulatory uh, issues that we might have if we were a pure bank. And you know, if I'm Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp, you know, hey, I should be looking at what WeChat is doing from an ecosystem or platform perspective, because it's it's pretty phenomenal. If I'm PayPal, Alipay are doing some really interesting stuff, not just on payments, but on you know insurance, on credit scoring, on digital banking, and so on and so forth. Anyway, so and Amazon, Alibaba, so on and so forth. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's kind of again reciprocal kind of lessons learned all around.
1: So I, I guess, you know, the banks that you work with in China, in Singapore. You know, this must be keeping them up at night, right? You know, you've got actually when we look at the most innovative things happening, it's it is the Alibabas, it is the Ten Cents, it is the the sort of WeChat pieces in terms of what we're doing. So, you know, how how are they sleeping initially? And then actually, you know, what's what's gonna be the, the sort of backlash here? Because, you know, how innovative are the Chinese banks?
0: So the Chinese banks themselves are Again, I mean, it's, it's hard to, China itself is a pretty opaque market, so kind of getting a sense of, of what's happening at a macro level is difficult. Some of the folks we're working with, I think there's a view that, as I say, it's been white space that these guys have entered initially. Uh, SMEs, consumers have not traditionally been a big focus of the Chinese banks, but I think there's, they're beginning to appreciate that, you know, when I move money from my bank account and move it onto an Alipay wallet or WeChat wallet, Uh, And from there, I'm doing peer-to-peer payments. I'm booking taxis. I'm, I'm booking, you know, Mm -hmm. dinners. I'm, I'm splitting bills. I'm doing all that kind of stuff. And indeed, a whole range of additional services that the banks aren't seeing any of the transaction data come back. So I think the big thing is, of course, they're losing card fees. uh, Union Pay being the, the single, um, card scheme in China. Mm -hmm. So they're being impacted from a, from a revenue perspective. But I think increasingly there's the realization that, hey, we're also losing a lot of that transaction data, which banks, by the way, nowhere have ever been very good at leveraging, but I think as they begin to figure out that FinTech is fundamentally about analytics, they're beginning to realize, well, we're losing some pretty important data. So, I mean, I recently gave a, a kind of a guest lecture at Hong Kong University on the topic of kind of FinTech in China and so on. It was pretty interesting because for me, it was a great learning experience because you know of the 100 folks in the class, maybe 60 or 70 of them were from mainland China. So halfway through, I just stopped and said, "Hey, can you guys tell me? These are these are guys in their earlier mid twenties. Can you tell me what you're doing? What is your experience of financial services? What what does it mean to you?" And you know, across the board, these people are using uh, WeChat first and foremost. WeChat uh, certainly as a means of communication, but as a means of sharing money, as moving money around the system, and increasingly paying offline. So you go into a McDonald's, or you go into whatever else, and and that's their primary focus. Um, so the banking relationship of course exists in the background from a settlement account perspective, whatever else, but you know, for, for young people coming up, their primary gateway to financial services is non-banks, right? Mm. So that's um, that's scary to, to, to your question for the China banks, but it should be scary and is scary to a lot of folks in the region as well. Mm. Um, because you know i'm very much of the view that these big technology players be they the chinese ones or some of the others aren't looking to disrupt banking per se they're looking to disintermediate the banking relationship with the customer because first and foremost they don't want to build the core infrastructure why would you i mean i often make the point that you know if you're a technology player you want to be valued like a technology player you want a multiple of forward earnings or forward revenues probably you don't want to build a bank because banks trade at less than book for a reason yeah. That dawning realization is happening with certain clients and with others, frankly. I just don't think they're organizationally able to uh, adapt. But- well, it's,
1: it's very difficult, isn't it? Because, like you say, that's a if you believe the view that sort of commoditization of, of products will be the horizon. Taking the leap to do something about that, you know, either you need to take ownership of the uh, the customer engagement and become that front of front of mind, front of house thing, which is fundamentally very, very difficult for players, isn't it? Because it's it's kind of a a space that they're not used to having to really be innovative around. You know, the idea of being a fast follower Mm -hmm. to becoming a you know a a kind of a true innovator is very difficult leap. Um, But alternatively, if if they kind of slip back and become that commoditized pipe then really the the kind of fundamentals of, of universal banking really go away, don't they? You know, the ability to cross sell and upsell when somebody else is managing that dialogue with the customer is it's quite a scary, scary view, isn't it? But like you say, it's it's not a bridge very far, is it, in terms of actually what you're seeing in Hong Kong now?
0: Not at all. I mean, I think the reality is it's a mindset change of saying, well, we need to go where the customer is. And so in China, for example, that's WeChat. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, people spend 60% of the time they spend on the internet in China, they spend on WeChat. And, and and the internet in China, by the way, is mobile, effectively. you just It's it's interchangeable. So.
1: Well, I, I use you as my point of reference for most of the statistics for Hong Kong, quite frankly. So like the red envelope statistics that were yeah. coming through were just phenomenal. You know, in in seconds we're seeing hundreds of millions of uh, just like transferring, which is just insane.
0: Yeah, so I mean just to to put that in context, I mean in the six-day Chinese New Year holiday that just passed last week, there were 46 billion transactions on WeChat alone. So that's 46 billion red packets which are the kind of traditional gift that you would of some monetary value. uh, 46 billion. So I mean to put that in context you know, now I I often compare it to PayPal and say, you know, this is an order of magnitude obviously greater than PayPal did globally, but it's a little bit of an unfair comparison because the the manner in which they've constructed this red packet product is such that it it lends itself to, I mean, that's why it's so smart, it lends itself to this virality, you can send 30 at the same time, etc, etc. But for me, the really interesting part about that, and that's WeChat, Um, Who have really taken the lead on this red packets promotion the really interesting thing for me is how a messaging service? Through this type of promotion through this type of kind of business model innovation has enabled or Encouraged so many people to associate their payment credentials Mm -hmm. because if you think about it You know if whatsapp or facebook come to you and and say hey, can you uh, attach your credit card or bank account? Probably you'd be thinking why, firstly, yeah. and and is this something I want to do? But if you suddenly got this kind of viral promotion, mm. uh, and Red Package was only launched four years ago, right? Wow. But you know the the speed of adoption has been such that this messaging platform has become a, you know a financial services instrument, right? Yeah. I mean, an interesting stat which I think is kind of underappreciated is and according to the um, People's Bank of China, so the central bank in China, more transactions now occur by volume through non-banks than through banks. So the volume is about 54% of all transactions now run through non-banks. Now the value, of course, is still all with the banks. It's like 96% or something. So what does that mean? Well, microtransactions, you and me uh, exchanging money or red packets or whatever else through WeChat, through Alipay predominantly, But I mean, that's where the customers are. So you know, as a consequence, if the customers are spending their time on messaging apps, well, then increasingly, the banks in China have begun to, of course, integrate with WeChat. So if I want to now check my balance with any of the big China banks, I can do it through, through WeChat. Ultimately, I'll be able to move money in and out of my account. Well, I, I can now, of course. But ultimately, I'll be able to do more and more financial services, perhaps manufactured by banks in the background. But ult- ultimately, it'll be through the WeChat interface, because that becomes the operating system. So this is the big threat. And, and I think, you know, to your point, it's, it's some, of the, some of the more forward-thinking guys, certainly in Asia, see this as a, as a very real threat. Um, and I think then come out to Europe and the US, and it's a question of are there comparators out here, whether it is the Amazons or Facebooks or, or Apples of this world? Or perhaps is it the, the Chinese themselves? I mean, we've seen the MoneyGram acquisition of the US, which is uh, very huge. Yeah, really huge. And, and you guys were
1: involved in that, weren't you? Uh,
0: yeah, so our transaction advisory team um, were uh, advising Ant on the uh, buy side due diligence and so on. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, so that was a, a team out of, uh, out of Hong Kong and China working with our teams out of the US. So again, maybe it goes back to the point earlier where I said we try to align a lot of our thinking because China outbound is itself an opportunity as these big guys go global. Um, But then also, you know, for our clients in other markets, what are some of the things they can learn about uh, these business models?
1: It's an amazing, you know, an acquisition 800 and was it 873 million or
0: something? 880. And the way to remember the acquisition price is because 88 is a very... um, a lucky number okay. in, in Chinese, so it's uh, perhaps no coincidence that it was eight eighty. I, I don't know that, by the way. Let me just say, but eighty eight is any time you see eighty eight in uh, Chinese culture, it's uh, very lucky.
1: Yeah, oh, good, good to know. Yeah. good to know for negotiations down the line. Absolutely, I'm no, sure. Absolutely. I um, so I, I guess you must come into contact with loads of uh, startups in the the job that you do as well. Mm. So, you know, how is the sort of startup? seen happening in, in Hong Kong as well. Has, has fintech really sort of started to, to flourish there in startup world?
0: I mean I think in Hong Kong we're still pretty nascent. Uh, I mean again you know I, I'm kind of looking at the region so I mean I think Hong Kong's a great base and, and there's some really interesting advantages to, to to being there but you know I'm equally interested in what's happening in some of the developing markets where you know kind of ultimately my view is fintech at least on the consumer side Is likely to have the biggest impact in developing markets. Uh, The reason I say that is because that's where the unmet needs are greatest, and that's where the opportunity for kind of 10x solutions is greatest as well. So, you know, we gave the example of China where the banks are underserving uh, small businesses or individuals. So then Ali come in with a 10x solution and you get mass adoption. But I mean that's equally true of markets like Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia. I mean, some of which are very big markets, right? Um, I think there's huge opportunity for consumer fintech to come in there and effectively disintermediate potential incumbents. Hong Kong is obviously a little different. Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, uh, Sydney, very developed markets, um, good penetration of existing financial services players. So I think having a 10x consumer product in that market is actually much more difficult. But of course, the big advantage of some of these markets as well is depth of capital markets and access to... If you want to do b2b obviously a lot of financial institutions are based there so anyway again another long-winded answer to the question of i think hong kong is pretty nascent in the fintech side i think it's generally true and across asia in fact um, we're seeing as is often the case it starts off with some kind of copycats of what's happening in other markets let's do a peer-to-peer let's do xyz blah 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 and i think over time we're beginning to see more interesting type solutions which are kind of specific to that market So, in Hong Kong, trade, anything with trade finance, I'm always interested in because we're a hub for that. Somewhere like Singapore, wealth management is obviously a key component. So, we're beginning to kind of see that level of specialization. But I still think there'll probably be a couple of years before we see some breakout uh, breakout startups.
1: I think in a few of those developed areas, some regulatory changes might start to really sort of, similar to what we've seen in the UK, you know, uh, potentially in places like Sydney or in in Australia more generally, you know, there's regs changes that are, you know, maybe bringing about a little bit of a, uh, similar to what we've got here with the challenger banks rise, you know, actually uh, lowering of the barriers of entry can really sort of start to see things kick in.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, specific to Australia for sure, um, I mean, very openly looking at what's happening in the UK with with open banking. Uh, the Productivity Commission there has recently ruled in relation to, to to data exchange and so on and so forth. You know, the banking market there is the four big pillar banks. Again, you know, I kind of take a bit of a macro view of a lot of this stuff. You know, Australia hasn't had a recession in, I can't remember if it's 25 quarters or 25 years, either way, a long time, and the banks have been really investing a lot of money over the past number of years. So again, the starting point is quite different. But I do think, to your point, the regulators, they're increasingly interested in about data ownership, data portability. Uh, I suspect Australia is going to be the next market to move in line with what's happening in the UK, for example, and then perhaps somewhere like Singapore. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think this is great. I mean, ultimately, I think anything that increases opportunity um, and competition is is generally beneficial. But, you know, I would also say that I suppose I'm not... um, When I look at some of the open banking initiatives, I suspect those that will benefit most will be the large technology players. Mm. And I'm kind of of the view that right now, certainly in the UK, the banks are kind of still going through a pretty tough time off the back of the, not only actually, of course, the impact of the global financial crisis on the banks themselves, but also the regulatory response, um, which has been, you know, imposing quite a number of new regulations, requirements, and so on and so forth. It's my own view that in a few years we'll be looking at it from the technology company's perspective as they begin to come under um, new regulatory requirements around data sharing, data portability. Even open banking itself is somewhat asymmetric if you think about it. I mean, the banks are going to be mandated to share transaction data with technology players, but what are the technology players providing in return? So yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be pretty interesting as we, as we continue.
1: It is exciting, isn't it? It feels like the, uh, you know, the tide is rising generally, doesn't it, for the industry in terms of the new people coming in, the, like you said, the access to, to data, the access to really deliver something unique, doesn't it? And it, yeah. it kind of feels like the, I guess the major winner in all of this should really be the customer, shouldn't it, in this space?
0: Yeah, no, and that's it. And I think actually the new people coming in is key. Um, I mean, the reality is you've got a lot of smart people working in, in the incumbent institutions. You've got oftentimes the big challenges around process. And, you know, I think as they can encourage more and more people, I mean, I guess there's the, the A16Z phrase around, you know, the incumbents, can the incumbents get innovation before the fintechs get distribution? And I still think that, that hasn't been resolved yet. And I think in some markets, You'll see some very forward-thinking incumbents who get the right people, get the right process, and make the right investments. And I think you'll see some fall behind and become the manufacturer of product who, who, who become disintermediated and, and who have to live with the margin compression uh, that goes with it. And you'll see some fintechs of whom, you know, what, 90% of them are not going to succeed, but of the 10 that succeed, maybe five of them go on to become real um, sizable players, both regionally and internationally. So yeah, it's a super exciting time. And and that you know, that lack of predictability is what makes it interesting for guys like you and me. It does.
1: It's great fun. Um, okay, so a few more questions about, about you and, uh, you know, being a, a bit of a... International jet setter I should probably be asking you your tips for jet lag if nothing else, but mm. may, maybe start with a uh, uh, What's your kind of number one productivity hack? Um, how do you stay product uh, productive in terms of all of the flights and everything that you do?
0: I'm not on Facebook That's probably a pretty good hack straight away um, it does mean I'm I'm a bit of a whore on LinkedIn though So posting probably more regularly than I should do. Pfft, I, I don't know if I have I don't know I'm not sure how efficient my productivity is to begin with because I'm a voracious reader. So I'll read anything that anyone sends me. I'm very keen on meeting people. I mean, maybe this is the hack. I mean, I think the way to understand a market, the way to understand what's happening, if you want to know what's happening in London, in fintech, the way is to get out and meet as many people as you can from all different from all different aspects. I mean, I like meeting the startup guys. I like meeting the venture guys, but I like meeting the banks as well because they they tell you what they care about. They tell you where the investment's going so yeah i i don't know if that's too uh patented a hack but i mean people are are the best best knowledge center for for what's happening in this industry
1: yeah i, com- I completely agree with that you know the more you listen to different perspectives and you know definitely something that's we have found with with doing this podcast the more people you talk to, the more rounded your perspective actually is. So it uh, seems old fashioned, just chat to people, doesn't it? But it, yeah. it definitely works. So um, what, what about, I, I guess, um, from a uh, relaxation perspective? You know, you're obviously a very, very busy man. What do you do to to chill out on the weekend?
0: Oh, chill out on the weekend? I don't know if you'd call it chilling out, but I have two young boys. Mm. So, um, I mean, it's it's the best best part of my week, best part of my year. I mean, just, just hang out with the boys and uh, I mean, family is extremely important to me in every respect. And, you know, look, I, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm um, very fortunate to have the role I have because I'm genuinely interested in it. I get to meet very interesting people. I get to travel around. But, you know, it's tiring. You work hard. And I'm a big believer in taking time out and, and hanging out with my family and, and kind of travel. We you know we travel quite a lot in Asia. It's relatively straightforward. And, and that's, a, that's a huge part of it. And, in fact, one thing I need to get much better at is actually turning my phone off and trying to take a few hours of uninterrupted, uh, you know, I don't need to know what's on Twitter at every second moment. I don't need to read every single thing that has fintech in the title. And sometimes you just want to kick back and, and play football. Uh,
1: that You sound like my wife. I get that <laughs> sentence all the time. So, yeah, I, I,
0: me and you both, we need to turn our phones off. Uh, I just... need to get better. But the problem is, of course, I am really interested in what's happening at all times. And I kind of want to do both. Yeah. But um,
1: Well, there's, there's this blurred line, I think, increasingly between... Uh, I think we're lucky, right? The, the jobs we do, we love doing. Therefore, the blurred line between work and and, and sort of leisure is is increasingly sort of blurry, isn't it?
0: So. Absolutely. I mean, look, I you know I go off for a few days, take on leave, and and I'm like, great, I, I I don't need to check my emails for a couple of days. But of course, I check it every hour, and, and <laughs> I'm, you, you know you're almost annoyed if there isn't an avalanche of emails, even though you're also annoyed that there is. So, look, I think it's just about enjoying what you do and, and trying to. Um, the advantage, as we just mentioned, is this is kind of a people industry as well, because because we, we are looking at what's happening, what's new, you know, what, what do people want to build in the future, uh, a lot of that is about meeting people, and, and that's something that, personally, uh, you know, I find very enjoyable.
1: Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Um, where can our uh, viewers and listeners listen to more about EY?
0: Well, I guess you know, check out, on the, I'm trying to think what we have on the website, we have a, a FinTech uh, landing page which is our global landing page. And there's uh, some information in relation to America as me and, and APAC. Uh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Twitter is kind of half personal, half, uh, half work related. But yeah, always happy to chat with folks who have uh, an interesting perspective. And look, the beauty of this space is every day I meet people who are smarter than me, who know more than me. And, and, and that's great. I mean, that's what it's all about. So yeah, always happy to chat.
1: Brilliant. Well, thanks for joining us, James. That's everything we've got for for this week. Um, Thank you very much for for joining us and and watching this on YouTube and listening to this via uh, iTunes or if you're an Android listener like uh, Simon via your uh, choice of Android phone. Um, If you'd like to learn more or you'd like to friend us, please uh, friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and you can also subscribe through YouTube. Thanks very much. That's everything for this week.